Welcome to another Salvation by Grace message from Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are currently engaged in a verse-by-verse Bible study of the Gospel of Matthew. Now, let's join the congregation of GCA and our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Today is Sunday, October 11th, 2015, and at this moment, it is 4 o'clock in the afternoon. I am standing behind the pulpit at GCA, and I am speaking to a room full of empty chairs. And why am I doing that? Well, because one of my responsibilities on Sunday mornings is to push the red record button on the digital recorder that records our messages and services so that we can share them with people listening via the internet. And this morning I didn't push the button. I had other things on my mind and other responsibilities and I simply neglected to hit the record button. Much to my chagrin, because it was a good morning, a very interactive morning with good comments and feedback and plenty of joy and good humor and none of that recorded so we can't share that with the internet. now. We have folks out there on the internet who are every bit as important to the life and well-being of GCA as any member of the local congregation. The reality is, being a relatively small church, we couldn't do the things we do without the help and support that we receive from our internet listeners. And so I take the responsibility to the internet very, very seriously, and if I just let a non-recorded message go by, then the folks listening on the internet are going to be kind of out of sync next week when we pick up later in the book of Matthew and they discover that there's a big chunk of Matthew missing. And so I came up here, strapped on the microphone so that I can talk to the internet and teach the lesson that we taught this morning. Of course, facets of it, parts of it are going to be different simply by virtue of the fact that I'm not looking in anybody's eyes or getting any of that instantaneous emotional feedback. This morning I also wrote some words up on the board, and that won't help anybody on the internet, so I will just talk about those words and spell them out for you. This morning we began in Matthew chapter 17, and we last week had just gone on talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. And we looked at the gospel accounts of the transfiguration from Matthew 17, from Mark 9, and from Luke 9. And that took up the majority of our morning last week until I was out of time. But there was still a little bit more that I wanted to say about it. Because after all, at the very end of the transfiguration account in Matthew 17, Jesus told his disciples not to go and tell the vision to anybody until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Here again, Jesus makes direct reference to the fact that he is going to rise from the dead, indicating that he is going to die, but also that he is going to resurrect. And in fact, in chapter 16 and this early part of chapter 17, he brings that up three different times. In chapter 16, that's the interaction with Peter, starting at verse 21, 
that says, from that time, Jesus Christ began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up again the third day. And Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him and said, God forbid it, Lord, this should never happen to you. And then he turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's interests. And then just a few verses later, we come across what I just read, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And just a few verses later, chapter 17, verse 22, they were gathering together in Galilee, and Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day, and they were deeply grieved. So this is a subject that Jesus is returning to time and time again, repeating it over and over, just to kind of plant it in their brains, and yet they don't get it, yet they just don't understand it. And at the end of this message today, we'll talk about why they didn't understand it when we talk about the content of faith. So the transfiguration happened, and Jesus told Peter, John, and James, the three men that he took with him up on the mountain, he told them, don't tell anybody about this until after I've risen from the dead, which I think would be hard to do. I think it would be difficult to see Jesus transformed, transfigured, the glory of God shining, showing through him, even his clothing turning whiter than any launderer could make them, and then you're not supposed to tell anybody. I think the reason that Jesus told them not to tell anybody, but to keep it secret until after the resurrection, was because he knew that until they had the Holy Spirit implanted in them at Pentecost, they weren't going to be able to tell this story correctly. They weren't going to be able to tell it accurately. Because, as I've already mentioned, he has repeatedly told them direct scriptural facts. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be turned over. I'm going to die. I'm going to raise again. And not only did they not understand it, they actively opposed it. Peter actively opposed it until Jesus called him Satan to his face. And so if they couldn't even get that right, then, of course, Jesus knew that if they went out and started telling the transfiguration story, they weren't going to be able to tell it right, tell it accurately, or put it in its proper historic and revelatory context until they had the spirit of truth indwelling them. So he said, don't tell it until I've risen again, because then it'll have a context. Then it's going to make sense to you. When I'm risen again, when the Spirit has come, when the promised Spirit of God indwells his people, well, then they're going to be able to tell the story and tell it accurately, which is exactly, by the way, what Peter did. Second Peter chapter 1, Peter makes a direct reference to that event, to the transfiguration of Christ. So let's take a look at that. 2 Peter chapter 1, starting around verse 17. Actually, verse 17 is where the reference to the Mount of Transfiguration begins, but this morning we began in verse 12 because Peter said some really interesting things about what he had taught, 
what he is teaching, why he's teaching, and the fact that he's about to leave the world exactly as Jesus predicted. And knowing that his life was about to come to an end, he wanted to emphasize yet again what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration because it was that important to him to convey this and to plant it in their collective memories. So starting in verse 12, Therefore, I shall always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. That's a jam-packed verse. There's a lot going on there, starting with the fact that Peter obviously had already taught these things to the people that he was writing to. He had already established them in the truth which is present with you. He was ready always to remind them of things he had already told them. He had already taught them the truth. He had already taught them the gospel, and yet he was perfectly willing to teach it to them and remind them of it over and over again. And I think that's because Christians are actually hungry for the truth over and over again. The truth of our salvation, the truth of who Christ is, the astounding gift of grace that resulted in the Holy Spirit indwelling God's people, that's news, that's information and teaching that never really gets old. That's the kind of stuff that I want to hear again and again and again. I pointed out this morning that there were people in the room who had been Christians their whole lives, some of whom are very familiar with the Bible, very familiar with the Scripture, and yet they get up on Sunday mornings and they get dressed and they get in the car and they go to church because they want to hear it again and again. And Peter said, Therefore, I shall always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and you've been established in the truth that is present with you. And I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of a reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you may be able to call these things to mind. People remember things through repetition. And Peter recognized that. He realized that by teaching these truths to them over and over and over again, these truths would be implanted in their memory so that when he was gone, they'd remember it, and there'd be a large enough group of people who remembered it that they collectively could teach other people and the truth would continue to spread because he considered it right as long as he was in his earthly dwelling to stir them up by way of reminder. Peter was especially driven by the fact that the clock was ticking. He knew that his life was about to come to an end But that was no surprise to him. He had actually been told that that was going to happen. And that's actually recounted for us at the end of the Gospel of John. You may recall that Jesus appeared by the Sea of Galilee while some of the disciples, including Peter, were back to fishing, what they had always done. And when Peter recognized 
that it was Jesus standing on the shore after Jesus had told them to throw the net out on the other side and they collected so many fish that they couldn't drag the net back in. Peter jumped into the water, swam to shore. That's where they had the conversation where three times Jesus said, do you love me more than these? And he said, you know that I love you. And he said, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Well, after that, Jesus said this to Peter, verse 18 of John 21. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Then John tells us, now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And then when he had spoken this, he said to Peter, follow me. So Jesus told Peter that he was going to be dying a martyr's death in a way that he didn't want to die. And so Peter makes reference to that very fact as he's writing here in his second epistle. Knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you may be able to call these things to mind. Starting in verse 16 then, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales. I think the King James says fables there. We didn't follow cleverly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, saying, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own or a private interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Okay, let's sort through all of this. First, Peter is claiming that he is an actual eyewitness to irrefutable evidence that proves that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, is the promised Messiah. And because he is an eyewitness to irrefutable proof, then he knows that the prophetic word, all the prophecy that you find in what we call the Old Testament, the scripture that was extant when Jesus was walking on the planet, all of those prophetic words concerning the Messiah were made all the more sure and certain by the fact that while they were on the Mount of Transfiguration, not only did they see the glory of God, but they heard a voice made by him by the majestic glory. And the voice said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So Peter is arguing, I was there, I saw it, I heard it. 
I heard a voice from heaven that was surely God declare that Jesus of Nazareth was his only begotten son and that God was well pleased with him. And he's arguing this isn't some cleverly devised fable or some kind of made-up story. We didn't get together in a room somewhere and fabricate this in order to convince you or to gain followers for ourselves. We're telling you this, and I keep repeating this to you because I am an eyewitness. Now, in any kind of court setting, in any kind of legal trial, you can't get better evidence than an eyewitness account. Somebody who was actually there, somebody who actually saw it, that's the best evidence you can get short of being there and seeing it for yourself. If you can't be the first-hand witness, having an actual eyewitness is the best way to receive a, a genuine, credible account of what actually happened. And the New Testament writers, especially the apostles, do say and claim over and over again that they are first-hand eyewitnesses of these things. Now, these days, if you dial up the Internet and you start looking at or listening to the material that comes from the current crop of atheists, online Bible critics, cynics, and so-called rationalists, one of the common arguments that they make against the Bible and against Christianity is that they say this was something that was made up. It was devised. They may even go so far as to say Jesus as a person simply never lived. And so this is all just a made-up tale. Some will say he did live, he was a good man, he said some good things, but the idea that he was God was something that was made up later by his followers. Once he died, once he was in the tomb, once his body was lost to history, once he was dead and stayed dead, they realized that the only way to keep their movement going was to get together and tell a better version of the story. So they all got together somewhere and devised a story. But Peter recognizes that argument. It's kind of funny when I see the online critics and atheists try to make that argument, and they try to make it as if it's something new. 2,000 years after the fact, they think that they actually know more about what happened 2,000 years ago than the eyewitnesses do. And so they try to argue against the eyewitness accounts by accusing the witnesses of making this stuff up. But Peter dealt with that 2,000 years ago. There's nothing new under the sun. The same arguments that are being made now are the same arguments they were making back then. And so Peter took the time to say, we're not following cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses, and not just eyewitnesses of his ministry or his miracles, but eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, we heard that utterance, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And as far as Peter was concerned, that was the evidence that not only Jesus of Nazareth was in fact Messiah, but it was evidence that all the prophecy of the Old Testament was true because it all pointed to Christ who then was fulfilling and satisfying 
all of the prophecies concerning Messiah. He was actually doing the things that prophecy said Messiah would do. He was born where they said Messiah would be born. He did the miracles that only Messiah could do. He took authority over Moses and over the law as only Messiah could do. So as far as Peter's concerned, these realities, the things that he witnessed firsthand on the Mount of Transfiguration, prove that we have the prophetic word made more sure. And then he says, to which you do well to pay attention. Pay attention to the prophecy. Pay attention to the word of God. Pay attention to what the Bible has to say, because not only does it all lead and guide you ultimately to Christ, but it's trustworthy because it's provable. It's demonstrably and historically true because we have eyewitness accounts. And then the Bible itself, the New Testament documents in particular, are especially credible because we have in excess of 5,000 pieces, bits, fragments, and complete books from the New Testament. Collectively, that is more written evidence than of any other historic work. No other written historic work comes even close when it comes to the number of actual provable historic documents the New Testament has. Reaching back to within 60 years of the actual events. No other historic figure or historic book has that many written pieces of evidence that are still extant that we can still lay hands on and have a look at, and none of them reach back as close to the original source. So here again is the big picture. What we have are eyewitnesses who actually saw and heard these things who actually walked and talked with Jesus, who actually existed. They, as first-hand witnesses, heard directly from God and received the evidence of the Holy Spirit so that they would accurately recall, remember the things that he said, and be able to convey them truthfully. And they, fortunately, recorded in writing their testimony of who Jesus was. And we have so many extant manuscripts to this very day that we can have a tremendous amount of confidence that we know what the original autographs said. Because even though there are occasional differences in copies between all the various copies, we are able to compare and contrast and recognize where those differences, which are just called textual variants, we know where they exist and uh, by comparing copy with copy, early versus late, we have a very, very good sense of what the original autograph said. So we have first-hand words from first-hand eyewitnesses who actually witnessed Jesus, heard from him, and heard from God that Jesus of Nazareth is the very Son of God with whom God is very pleased. And you just don't get better historical witness, proof, and attestation to any fact than you get to Christianity. So, so here's what Peter did. He took the fact that Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, the voice that came from heaven. He put that all together and put it in the context of this is positive proof and evidence that Jesus is exactly who he said he was. Here is Peter about to die, 
and he one more time is reciting the fact that Jesus is who he said he is and that Peter can't waver from it because he himself stood on a mountain, saw Jesus, heard the voice. And that settles the issue for Peter. And since we have firsthand witness and attestation to these facts, that ought to help settle it for us. Okay, so that was all sewing up a few loose threads from last week. I left a few things dangling there, and I wanted to make sure and show you that Peter actually did what Jesus said. He did actually tell people about the transfiguration once Jesus died, buried, and resurrected, and Peter could finally put it into that larger context and teach it appropriately. That takes us to Matthew chapter 17, and we are starting in verse 14. After Peter, John, and James came down off the mountain with Jesus, that leaves the other nine apostles who weren't up there on the mountain. And they had been having an interaction with a man who had a demonically possessed son, a demonically possessed child. Verse 14, and when they came to the multitude, a man came up to him, falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and he is very ill, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not cure him. This is a really sympathetic moment. This poor man has a child, and any father who has children, you know how a father's heart bleeds for your children. If you see a child that's sick, you wish that you could take the sickness so that the child wouldn't have to suffer, where here's a child who is suffering from a demon and is oftentimes thrown into the fire and is oftentimes thrown into the water, so the demon is attempting to hurt the child. Now, last week in passing, I pointed out that multiple times through Jesus' ministry, oftentimes after he has had sort of mountaintop moments, times when he has displayed his power, times when he has been recognized as the Christ, right on the heels of many of those events, Satan shows up. There's like the opposite and inverse reaction. Jesus is here. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is powerful. And then Satan comes on the scene and demonstrates some amount of power and authority and tragedy. And of course, in each one of these instances, Jesus demonstrates his power and his authority, showing that he is in control not only of the physical realm, but that he's in control of the spiritual realm. And that's really important and comforting for those of us who realize and recognize that we're simply no match for demonic powers that have been alive for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And then we've been on the planet for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, 60 in some cases, and, and we're simply no match for the spiritual darkness and cunning of Satan and his minions. 
And were it not for Jesus intervening on our behalf, the more powerful one taking up residence inside his saints, if it weren't for the protection of the Holy Spirit, then what Jesus said to Peter would also happen to us. Jesus said to Peter, Satan desired to have you so that he could sift you like wheat. And every one of us would be imminently siftable if, in fact, Jesus left us to our own devices. Because we're simply no match for these principalities and powers, the darkness of the rulers of this world and spiritual wickedness in high places. And because we're no match, it's really good to know that we have not only an advocate with the Father, but a powerful Savior here and now who not only protects us from the worldly realm, but protects us in the spiritual realm. And on top of that, sends angels to protect his people and to accompany us all the way to our predestined home in heaven. So Satan comes on the scene. Jesus responds. Now, Jesus' response is kind of surprising. You would think that it would be more empathetic. After all, this father has a child who's going through these terrible things, lunatic, gone crazy. He's very sick. He's very ill. He falls into the fire, for goodness sake. He tries to drown himself. Jesus' response might have been, could have been more sympathetic on the surface than what he actually said. But here's his response in verse 17. Jesus said to them, Oh, unbelieving and The NASB says, and perverted generation. It's a crooked generation. It's a bent generation. Oh, unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. There's a few words in there that we really have to dig into because Jesus wasn't just saying this out of nowhere. He didn't just see this man and his lunatic child and then leap right to unbelieving perverted generation. He was actually quoting from the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. He was actually saying something very large, very prophetic, and very, very important. So let's look at it. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 32, this is classically called the Song of Moses. And when you see the word song there, like Song of Solomon, when you see the ancient word that is translated song, it doesn't mean swing it, here we go, do-da-do-da-da. It's not a song, melodic type song. What it means is a recitation or a story that is put into a form of prose so that it can be remembered and repeated over and over again. Remembering again that early people and early Jews, their primary way of communicating was not in writing. The primary communication was in speech, passing down the stories of their history, passing down their genealogies, passing down their common ancestries and the stories of the people who brought them to the place that they were. And the easiest way to pass that information was through what was called a song, a recitation, an almost poetic way of telling a story or a history or a prophecy. Well, in the Song of Moses, Moses is actually predicting prophetically 
that Israel, though they have been delivered out of Egypt, though Moses did lead them to Mount Sinai, though they do have the law, though they are in covenant with God, despite all that, once they enter the promised land, Moses says, you're going to rebel. You're going to turn against God, and you're not going to keep his word. Despite the fact that you're going into the land of milk and honey, once you're in there, you're going to rebel against God. And the purpose of the song was to teach Moses' contemporaries the reality of what was going to happen once they went into the land, and they were to teach that to their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren, and they were just supposed to keep reciting this so that when, in future generations, they saw the punishment of God upon themselves, they would realize that this was actually happening because they weren't following after God's laws, they weren't doing things God's way, and that God himself already said this was going to happen. This is how you're going to be, you're stiff-necked people, you're rebellious people, and so it's no surprise that Israel winds up in the very state that we've been reading about and looking at on Wednesday nights as we've been reading about the downfall of Israel. So this is right at the end of Moses' life. Joshua has already been commissioned to be the leader of Israel. Moses has been allowed to see the promised land, but he's not allowed to lead the children of Israel into the promised land. And I think that's because God is always teaching the same story over and over again. Moses, who is the very embodiment of the law. We talked about that last week, that when Moses and Elijah appeared on either side of Jesus, they're representative of the law and the prophets. Moses, who is the embodiment of the law, could not lead the children of Israel into the promised land because the law cannot lead God's people into God's promises. Instead, they were going to be led into the promised land by Joshua, Jehoshua, whose Greek cognate name is Jesus. And so the children of Israel, the people of God, were led into the promises of God by a man named Jesus. Gosh, how lucky was that? But God in the scripture is telling the same story over and over again because in him, in Christ, all the promises of God are yes and amen, and that was typified when Moses couldn't lead the children of Israel in, but Jehoshua could. And so, starting in chapter 31, verse 26, Moses, instructing the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant, said, Take this book of the law and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may remain there as a witness against you. For I know your rebellion and your stubbornness. Behold, while I am still alive with you today, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more then after my death? Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers, that I may speak these words in their hearing, and call the heavens and the earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death you will act corruptly and turn from the way which I have commanded you, and evil will befall you in the latter days. For you will do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger with the work of your hands. Then Moses spoke in the hearing of the assembly of Israel 
the words of this song until they were complete. Chapter 32, verse 1, the beginning of the song of Moses. Give ear, O heavens, and let me speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain, and my speech distill as the dew, as the droplets on the fresh grass, and as the showers on the herb. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. They, speaking of the people, they have acted corruptly toward him. They are not his children because of their defect, but they are a perverse and crooked generation. Same idea. They are a perverse and a crooked, a bent generation. So Jesus was actually quoting from the Song of Moses. He wasn't just arbitrarily coming up with, you're a faithless and a crooked generation, how long will I be with you? He was saying that the very circumstances that they found themselves in was a demonstration of the fact that what Moses said prophetically about them was the case, is the case, was still the case, if they had faith, which he's going to go on and talk about. But if they had faith, if they had followed God's word, if they had followed the law of God that they were required to keep, had they trusted in God, had they followed the very word of God, then Satan would not be running amok in their midst. And yet here they have a demon so powerful that the disciples, despite their best efforts, couldn't do anything about him. And so they come to Jesus and they say, everything we've tried hasn't worked. Everything we've tried has failed. And his response is, you are exactly how Moses described you. You are faithless. You are crooked. You are perverse. Now let's talk about the word generation here for a moment. Because the Hebrew word that we read in Deuteronomy 32.5 is a very short word. In English letters, it would be D-O-R, pronounced door. It's a word that you find a lot in the Old Testament, and it has a pretty wide variety of interpretations. Sometimes it's rendered as generation, sometimes plural generations, sometimes all generations, sometimes every generation, and four times in the Old Testament, It has to do with kind, kinds of people, kinds of generations. When the Old Testament was translated into Greek, into the version that we commonly know as the Septuagint, the Greek word that the translators used to translate the word door was the word genea. And I hope you're becoming more familiar with this word because it actually is an important word translated again generation in our English translations. Now, either Moses was saying that the people alive right during that period of time as he was preparing to die, the second generation of Israelites who came out of Egypt after the first generation had all died in the wilderness, Here they are about to go into the promised land. So this is the second generation. And either Moses said, you're a wicked generation. 
And then history happened and Israel was pretty good for about 1400 years. And then Jesus showed up and said to the people who were alive at the time he was on the planet, you're also a faithless generation. I don't think that's what was happening. I think what was happening was that Moses declared the faithlessness, the crookedness, the rebelliousness of Israel nationally. And then what we've been seeing on Wednesday nights through the Old Testament is that the history of Israel is that they kept going from bad to worse, culminating in the fact that God drove the northern tribes out of their land altogether. And then, of course, we know that come 70 A.D., after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, after he ascends off the planet, then Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed, and even the southern tribes are dispersed. Okay, so there's nowhere in that timeline where you see Israel doing pretty good. You just see the consistency of what Moses said, that they were not just a faithless and perverse group of people all alive at the same moment right then, but that he was talking about Ganea or Dor as a kind of people, those who share a common genealogy. In the past, I have written the word Ganea on the board, G-E-N-E-A in English letters. Don't change any of those letters, but add L-O-G-Y to the end, and you have the common English spelling of the word genealogy. And genealogy is all about people of a common descent. And its root word, genea, that is one of its meanings, a kind or a type of people. Here, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Over in the book of Numbers, in Numbers 9.10, we're going to see this word door used again, translated in the NASB as generation. But here's what it says, speak to the sons of Israel saying, if any one of you or of your generations becomes unclean because of a dead person or is on a distant journey, he may, however, observe the Passover of the Lord. So in the midst of this Passover rule, speaking to the sons of Israel, God lays out a rule that applies to the successive ongoing people of Israel by their generations collectively as a group. But this has nothing to do with any other people group than Israelites. And so depending on your translation, and this morning we had a couple different people read from a couple different translations, and the new King James said, speak to the children of Israel saying, if any one of you or your posterity is unclean because of a corpse. And the NIV says, when any of you or your descendants. So this word, door, genea, generation, sometimes means people group, regardless of what period of time they happen to be alive during. Now, I said all that to say. The Song of Moses speaks of Israel as being faithless. They have acted corruptly toward him. They are not his children because of their defect, but they are a perverse and a crooked generation. In Matthew 7, Jesus witnesses this man with the demoniac child. The man brought the child to the disciples 
Nobody could do anything about it. The fact that they couldn't do anything about it demonstrated their lack of faith. And that's what Jesus said. Oh, unbelieving or faithless and perverted generation, how long will I be with you? He reached all the way back to the song of Moses in order to say that Israel was faithless in Moses' day. They were crooked and they were rebellious. And they've never gotten any better. And now Jesus is on the planet And they still are exactly the way that Moses described them. This is not just the condition of the people standing in front of him. This is the condition of national Israel as demonstrated by the fact that Satan is running amok among them. Oh, unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? Now, the word unbelieving there or faithless in some of your translations is the adjective form of the word faith. The word faith is pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S in English letters. This would be P-I-S-T-O-S with the alpha negative on the front, a pistis. So that's why it's translated unbelieving or faithless. It is faith negated. Oh, unbelieving, faithless, and perverted generation How long will I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And then notice verse 18. What a beautiful relief. Jesus rebuked the demon and the demon came out of him and the boy was cured at once. Yet another demonstration of the tremendous difference between human beings, all human beings and Jesus because he has authority, because he has power, unlike the kind of authority or power that any human being has. I, this morning, called out one of our members, and I said, go on outside and yell at the wind and see how long it takes before the wind obeys you. Tell the wind to do something. Stop blowing. Blow a different direction. See if the wind will listen to you. And, of course, it won't. But the wind listened to Jesus. When he told the wind to be still, the wind was still. Go outside and yell at a tree. Tell the tree to die. See if the tree cares. The tree doesn't care. The tree's not going to change one iota because of anything you say to that tree. But Jesus saw a fig tree that had leaves on it. It was budding like it was going to bear fruit, but it had no fruit on it, and he was hungry. And he cursed that tree. And the next day, that tree was dead. And his disciples marveled over the fact that he had this kind of authority. He had this kind of power. But not only does he have power over wind and trees and blindness and lameness and physical sickness, but he also has absolute authority over demonic powers. Nobody else could cure the boy. Nobody else could help the boy. But all it took was a word from Jesus, and it was accomplished. So then in verse 19, we read that later on, the disciples, apparently the ones who couldn't drive the demon out, came to Jesus privately and said, why couldn't we cast it out? Now, you might recall that earlier in Jesus' ministry, He had sent out his disciples, and when they came back, they were celebrating over the fact that even the demons and the devils were subject to them. And Jesus said, well, don't rejoice over that. 
Rejoice over the fact that your names are written in heaven. That's the really important part. But I think they had kind of gotten used to being able to say the words, whatever the formula was, and they had been able to call on the name of Jesus, and by that power, by that authority, they were able to drive out demons. And this time, they just couldn't drive out this particular demon. Perhaps a demonstration that this was a worse kind of demon. Didn't respond like the other ones. He said to them, because of the littleness of your faith, or the smallness of your faith, the diminutive quality of your faith. And in that case, he used a different Greek word that also includes that pistis root. In this case, it's oligopistia. In English letters, that's spelled O-L-I-G-O-P-I-S-T-I-A. And what it does mean is smallness or littleness. That's the root word, smallness combined with faith. You couldn't drive that demon out because of the littleness, the smallness of your faith. Unlike when he spoke to Israel collectively, the Ganea, the generation, when he said that they were just like Moses described them, that they had no faith whatsoever, when talking to his own, when talking to his disciples, his apostles, he changed the word, he changed the language, and didn't say, you have no faith. He said, you have some faith, it's just still really small. Your faith has to grow, your faith has to be built, and at the moment, your faith is still too small to accomplish something like driving out this demon. And then he gives them this example, and he says, if you had faith like a mustard seed, Jesus mentions mustard seeds occasionally because they were the smallest grain of seed in the Middle East that would later produce a plant and produce some kind of fruit. And so he chose it because of its smallness. If you have faith like a mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it shall move, and nothing shall be impossible to you. Okay, now what is he saying there? Because that's a verse that, again, has been abused in a lot of different ways. Sometimes people, I think, trying to kind of save face for Jesus, allegorize that verse and say, now what he meant by speak to a mountain and move it is what he meant was when you go through life's challenges and you have some kind of real difficulty in your life, then you have to have faith enough to speak to your mountain. And I said this morning, boy, I could really preach that. You put an organ behind me and a choir stomping and clapping and just rev that up. I could, I could preach this. You can move your mountain. Just speak to that mountain and it's going to move. But I just don't think that's anything like what Jesus was getting at. I don't think he was being allegorical in the least. I think that he was being quite genuine and quite literal because according to the book of Zechariah, when Jesus returns, his feet touch the Mount of Olives and that mountain moves. That mountain cleaves in half and it moves. Jesus has the ability not only to move mountains, he has the ability to make worlds, speak planets into existence. So he says to them, if you had 
confidence in God and the power of God, you'd be able to move mountains. Nothing would indeed be impossible to you. You would certainly have been able to tell this demon to move, and he would have moved. He would have left. You just don't have that kind of faith, at least not yet. And then verse 21. Now, if you have a translation that includes footnotes, you'll probably see that verse 21 isn't included in the oldest manuscripts. And so the NASB actually puts the verse in brackets. Some translations will put a little asterisk by it with a footnote or a margin note, letting you know that it's not in the oldest translations. But it is in Mark 9.29. However, the version that's in Mark 9.29 says, this kind does not go out except by prayer. The word fasting, again, isn't in the earliest versions of even Mark 9. In fact, the NASB adds a footnote to Mark 9.29 saying, many manuscripts add and fasting. So some do, some don't. It's, it's a questionable verse. It is what is called a textual variant. I think probably what happened in Matthew was that some scribe somewhere down the line was copying Matthew 17. And Matthew 17 and Mark 9 and Luke 9 line up with each other really well. And since the phrase, but this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting, does appear in Mark 9.29, chances are some scribe was copying Matthew 17 and was just so familiar with the text of Matthew and Mark that he inserted, but this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting, because that's the way he knew the text. He probably worked by memory rather than by copy at that moment. And then what happens is, since manuscripts were copied and copies of copies, every manuscript copied from that first guy's version was going to continue to include that phrase right there. But the good news is, the phrase is biblical. Jesus did say some version of that sentence. At very least, he said, but this kind does not go out except by prayer. It's just not in the earliest manuscripts of Matthew, but it is in Mark, and so it is a valid statement. Now, we discuss it a little bit this morning, and I actually think that that phrase is part of Jesus' rebuke against the apostles. Because in Jesus' own life and ministry, starting out with 40 days of fasting and his continual devotion to prayer, we read over and over again that he would go apart by himself and he would go and pray to the Father in secret. Jesus' whole life and ministry was just drenched with this kind of communication with his Father, this constant prayer, but also this time of devoted, separated prayer. So he has power, he has authority, but he also has constant faith in his Father, consistent faith in the Word of God, which is why he's constantly driving people back to the Word. Why don't you believe everything that the Word says? And then he is a man of fasting and prayer. And so as part of his rebuke against his apostles, he could say, this type doesn't go out except by fasting and prayer, which you are lacking in, and it requires faith, which you are lacking in. And if you had the least amount of 
real genuine faith, you would have been able to do it. In fact, you'd have been able to move mountains and do the impossible. So all of this is a rebuke collectively against his apostles in particular, but these are still the ones that have little faith, and then against Israel collectively in keeping with the Song of Moses and what was predicted about national Israel from the beginning. Before they ever walked into their land, it was already predicted that they were going to be faithless and twisted and rebellious. And that's all what's going on in this part of chapter 17 that then wraps up with, and while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day, and they were deeply grieved. So let's take a look over at Mark 9 for just a second, because Mark actually does fill in a few blanks. Now, you internet people, you want to see how much I love you? We didn't get to Mark 9 this morning, but because I have the time and there's nobody sitting in front of me anxious to go get lunch, this internet message is actually going to be a little bit longer than the morning message. No, it's even longer. It doesn't stop. The internet message is going to be longer because we're going to look at Mark 9 for a moment because Mark 9 does fill in a few blanks. Starting at Mark 9, verse 14... And when they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. And immediately, when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and they began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him saying, teacher, I brought you my son possessed with a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it dashes him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and he grinds his teeth and he stiffens up. And I told your disciples to cast it out and they could not do it. So that gives us more information about the various ways that this young boy was being tortured. Not only throwing himself in the fire or throwing himself into the water, but that his whole body would stiffen up. He would be thrown to the ground. He'd foam at the mouth. There was a genuine lunacy to it, which is why his father would describe him as a lunatic. So Jesus answered and said, O faithless generation, how long will I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion. Imagine that. As soon as the spirit, as soon as the demon saw Jesus and Jesus saw him, the demon starts writhing. He knows he's in trouble. And threw the boy onto the ground and he began rolling about and foaming at the mouth And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. There's a couple different ways to read that, remembering that the earliest 
unctual manuscripts, kind of the words all run together. We don't have a whole lot of punctuation to help us understand how to break up phrases or understand the nuances. But these words could be read a couple of ways. The man said, if you can do anything, take pity on us. And Jesus may have been saying, if I can, what are you implying? Of course I can. So he may have been kind of mocking the question, if you can, or he may have been speaking to the man himself and saying, if you can, the implication being, if you can believe, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. I think that's the more accurate reading based on the way the man replies, because immediately the boy's father cried out and began saying, I do believe, and then this wonderful phrase that I didn't even get to this morning, so I didn't even really get an opportunity to preach on it, but this wonderful phrase, help thou mine unbelief, the King James. The NASB says, help my unbelief. What a wonderful profession. I do believe. I do believe but I struggle, but I do believe, but sometimes it's just difficult. And I think every one of us would profess the very same thing. Every one of us would have to confess that this Christian journey has not been just a smooth, straight road. We've gone through struggles, trials, ups and downs, peaks and valleys, and there are even times when we stop and ask, am I even Christian? Now, I said that this morning. I brought up the the fact that we all struggle with our faith. And I said, am I even Christian? And every head in the room nodded toward me. Yeah, that's my life. That's my testimony. It's difficult. Christianity is difficult. And my faith is not always consistent. So what's the answer? What's the solution? The solution always to our little faith, the solution always to anybody's lack of faith. The solution is always the same. The solution cannot be found within yourself. The solution is always Jesus. He is always the cure for your problem. He's the only one with the authority to control the demonic realm and protect his own in this present evil age and carry them all the way to their predestined eternity in the presence of God. He is the only one who sustains our life and breath, and we can't take thought to make ourselves taller or live one hour longer. It's always up to him. The answer is always him. We have a sin problem. We have a sin problem that is the reason that we sometimes question whether we're even saved, because we recognize in ourselves that we're just not as good as we think we ought to be. We'll set standards for ourselves that we don't live up to and that we can't live up to, and then we'll beat ourselves up over our failure because we keep thinking that somehow the answer, the solution, is within ourselves. And it's not. The solution, the answer, is always Jesus. Always, every time. I love the phrase, I do believe, help my unbelief. That is a proclamation of faith in Christ 
and a recognition of our sinful incapabilities. I do believe. That's exactly my testimony. I do believe. I really do. And and if he doesn't help my unbelief, then I'm a goner. I'm lost. Because far too often, my flesh, my sinful, corrupt, egocentric flesh gets in the way of how much my spirit longs to believe. So the cure, the solution is, I do believe, help thou mine unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying, You deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him, and do not enter him again. Look at the authority. Not only come out of him, but you don't get to go back there anymore. I have protected this one. I am the stronger man. This one belongs to me, and you can't do anything to him. It makes me think of the beginning of the book of Job, where when Jesus and Satan were talking and God pointed to Job, have you considered my servant Job, who's upright and eschews evil, and Satan said, well, he doesn't worship you for nothing. You've built a hedge around him. You protect him. Basically, I can't get to him. Well, that's the state of God's people. You have protection around you, a hedge built around you, the protection of God's own angels and the power of Christ himself and the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling you so that there is no power in heaven, hell, or earth that can get you out of the hands of God. There's no principality, no power. There's nothing in this world that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And he has the absolute authority to say to Satan, you can't have him. The same way that he said to Peter, Satan desired to have you and sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you so that your faith won't fail. And when you're converted, strengthen your brethren. Jesus had every confidence that Peter would be converted because he knew that he was going to protect him. He had prayed for him. Peter would be converted and go strengthen his brethren. Because again, Jesus has all the authority, and that's such good news. So Jesus saw the crowd gathering, and he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying, You deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him. Do not enter him again. And after crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out. And the boy became so much like a dead corpse that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he got up. And when he had come into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately, saying, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Some versions of Mark say, By prayer and fasting. So, all right, that kind of wraps up the section that we got to this morning, including a little extra stuff from Mark. But then to wrap up our morning, we talked, as I said an hour ago, we talked about the content of faith. So let's take a few minutes and do that, and then I can fold up my tents and go home and give my weary voice a rest. What do I mean by the content of faith? Jesus just said to Israel, but more importantly to his apostles, 
that they had little faith or no faith, leading me to ask the question, faith in what? What was the content of their faith? What were they expected to believe? Because now in the church, when we speak of faith, especially if we speak of saving faith, what we mean is we have confidence in the finished work of Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. But as we've seen, Jesus has been telling his apostles over and over again about his upcoming death, burial, and resurrection, and they don't get it. They don't believe it. They don't understand it. I think that's part of the littleness of their faith, is that Jesus has explained to them repeatedly what the prophets have said about him and about his death, burial, and resurrection, and they don't get it. They don't understand it. Their faith is small. But again, what is the content of their faith? Well, so this morning, I said, think back to Abraham. Abraham, we read, believed God, Amon, he amened God, and God counted it to him for righteousness. And what is it that he believed? Well, he believed what God said when God told him that not only was he going to possess all of this land that God had shown him, but that it was going to be an eternal inheritance for his posterity, despite the fact that Abraham had no children. And Abraham believed that, even though his circumstances denied that and mitigated against that, he believed it and God counted that to him for righteousness. And then Paul picks that up in the book of Galatians and demonstrates from Abraham that righteousness has always been the consequence of faith. Never is righteousness established by works of the law. Because far before the law, before Moses, before Sinai, Abraham had righteousness imputed to him on the basis of faith. And so Paul could argue that it's always been by faith that righteousness is established or imputed. But what is it that Abraham believed? He didn't believe in the death, burial, resurrection. He believed what God said. And that was the content of his faith. And so I have added the phrase, faith is believing what God has said so far. In Abraham's day, God had said some things. He hadn't said everything. He still hasn't to this moment, right now, 2015, he still hasn't said everything, but he has said a lot of things. And the content of our faith is supposed to be everything that God has said so far, up until now. The content of Israel's faith was, what has God said? What are the terms of your covenant? What has God said to you in the law? What has God said to you in the prophets? And Jesus, when he was on the planet, kept pointing at the scripture and accusing people of not understanding the scripture. And that's where their faithlessness existed, in their lack of confidence 
in what the scripture says because Jesus testified over and over again that the scripture was the very word of God. Frequently, he would refer to the scripture when arguing with the Pharisees and he would say, have you not read where God said? Because as far as Jesus was concerned, the scripture, what we call the Old Testament, the scripture extant at Jesus' time, that was the very word of God and they were responsible for it and their rebellion against it was demonstrative of their lack of faith. For instance, at the very end of the book of Luke, the Emmaus Road conversation, as two of Jesus' disciples were going that day to a village named Emmaus, you may recall Jesus joined them and they didn't know that it was him. And when he asked them what they were discussing, they said, are you a stranger here? Don't you know about these things? And when he says to them in Luke 24, 19, he said to them, what things? And they said, the things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to the sentence of death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things have happened, but also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, this is the other side of the same coin. Earlier in this message, I mentioned repeatedly, Jesus has been saying, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be delivered over. I'm going to die. I'm going to be in the tomb for three days, three nights. I'm going to resurrect. I'm going to come back. And he was saying all of that based on the scripture. The scripture must be fulfilled concerning the son of man. These things have to happen. And so when they say, after the fact, we're hearing that these things all occurred, verse 25, he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So the phrase, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe, that's that lack of faith thing again. The, the apistus, the lack of faith in what? In the scripture, in everything that the prophets have spoken. So the content of faith is everything that God has said thus far. And it is our responsibility to believe, to embrace everything that God has said. What he said to Abraham was different than what he said to Moses, which is different than what Jesus said to Israel, which is different than, or at least was expanded upon by Paul then teaching to the church, which was then yet again expanded on 
in 92, 94 AD when John was on the Isle of Patmos. In each of those instances, God was increasing the revelation of himself and our faith is wrapped up in everything that God has said thus far. That is the content of our faith. And if you don't believe all that, the way that the disciples didn't believe all of it, they believed some of it, they couldn't deny the transfiguration, they couldn't deny the healings they had seen, or the way that he stopped the wind and the rain, or that he walked on the water, they couldn't deny any of that. But when he said, I'm going to die, I'm going to be buried, I'm going to resurrect again, they couldn't believe that. They didn't believe that. They rejected it. They fought against it. And so Jesus could say to them, you have small faith. If you had real faith, if you had a genuine faith, if you had that kind of undoubting faith, even as small as a mustard seed, then you would do miraculous things, drive out demons, move mountains. Nothing would be impossible to you. But I think it is the human condition that because we're walking around in sinful bodies, we really do struggle with genuine, pure, undoubting, constant faith. Instead, we say, I do believe, I do, I really do believe, but help thou mine unbelief, because that is our state, that's our natural proclivity, is to fight against these things. So... So the answer again, the answer is always, the answer every single time is the same. What's the solution to your doubt? He is. What's the solution to the smallness of your faith? Well, he is. What's the solution to your sin problem? He is. What's the solution to this present evil age? He is. What's the solution to the the wickedness of mankind and the warring and the the egocentric destruction of other people, what's the solution? Well, the return of the Prince of Peace. He's the answer. He's always the solution. He's always the answer. He has power over demons, but he also has power over faith, election, salvation, redemption. He does all that. He accomplishes all that. The more we look for solutions to those things within ourselves, the more frustrated we're going to become because the solution to those things does not lay within ourselves. The solution is always in him. Our righteousness, our sanctification, God's satisfaction with us, our acceptance is always in and through and by Christ and his finished work. And so that becomes the content of our faith. I believe everything the Bible says because this is the word of God and this is what it says. And the content of my faith is everything from the beginning to the end. Because that's what we're called upon to believe, to have faith in. So I hope that was helpful. And I hope all you internet folk out there learned something from this. And I hope that some of the local GCA folk who were here also dialed us up again on the internet and got to hear that extra information from Mark 9 that we just didn't quite get to this morning because the clock is always, always working against me. But when I'm standing in a room with nobody else here, so there's no one here I can wear out, I have the time to go ahead and teach it all. So 
Thanks for tuning us in again. Thanks for listening. Thank you, all you Internet folk, for your ongoing love and support of GCA. And thank you once again for making me understand, realize, and recognize what a very, very blessed pastor I am. And uh, thank you for letting me do this for a living. Thank you for giving me the, the wherewithal to preach God's word and not have to compromise in order to get people to uh, like me or support us. So thank you very much for being the way you are, for your love of God, for your love of his word, and for your patience with this old, long-winded preacher. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and join us next time as we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.